Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both Nightmare Alley and The Card Counter and I am happy to be joined by my friend Ben Lubin who has just uh, made his way from one Midwestern burning house on his uh, long dark journey. Ben, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. You know, I, I left the Midwest a few years ago. I'm kind of disappointed to be going back, but you know, life takes you in strange directions. Yeah, I think you could say that about both of the movies uh, we're talking yeah. about today. Uh, we're going we're to talk first about Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. It is his first film since the Oscar-winning film from 2017, The Shape of Water. It uh, tells this, it's, it's a remake of a 1947 movie, uh, which was adapted from a book by William Lindsay Gresham. It tells the story of a man named Stanton Carlyle, who goes by Stan. He's played by Bradley Cooper. We see him mysteriously at the beginning of the movie, as I'm in as I kind of hinted at in the opening, uh, just burning down his Midwestern home for kind of it's we're left it's left to our imagination for the most part as to like what got him to that point. But the point is he he is looking for a fresh start. He comes upon a carnival that is run by a guy named Clem, who uh, just kind of sees something in Stan as a guy that like is looking for an opportunity to prove himself and uh, offers him a job, uh, kind of uh, you know helping out around the place. He kind of starts uh, seeing the different parts of the operation. There's a couple played by uh, Tony Collette and David Shatharian who uh, have their own kind of like. Uh, mentalist psychic routine. Uh, Rooney Mara plays Molly, who uh, becomes a bit of a love interest and goes on the run with Stan eventually. But she has her own kind of like, you know, visual presentation. And uh, he just kind of ingratiates himself into this operation, but, you know, kind of gets in with uh, David Tritharian's character named Pete and kind of learns the tricks of his trade and decides, like I said, get Molly, go on the run and kind of start his own thing. And I believe what is supposed to be Chicago right and they end up putting on their own act of what like kind of going a little further than uh the folks you learn the trade from at the festival do uh letting people think that they have the ability to commune with the dead this gets the attention of a psychiatrist uh played by Kate Blanchett named Lilith Ritter and she uh won't stand to kind of uh work with her as she has you know uh had a lot of clients who have a lot of wealth and thinks that he can use that knowledge to take advantage of other people and it kind of the movie takes some turns as you would expect from any Guillermo del Toro movie uh Ben I mean the kind of movies that Guillermo del Toro makes there I think they're of a genre that we haven't really talked about a ton before I would say and I don't really even know your feelings on him as a director I know you ended up liking this movie but I don't even know if that's something that surprised you or not so one I'm curious are you generally a del toro guy and uh two what did you think when you saw that he was maybe gonna like kind of venture out into a like a a bit of a different genre than we're used to seeing him in so i guess to to start with the del toro part first um i'm actually a really big fan of his uh one one thing that i say about this film that i said about the shape of water that i say about most of his movies um there is a certain quality of the cinematic that I almost think of the, like the, the way I would phrase it is there, there is a certain type of movie that you can almost just picture in an Oscar highlights reel of the movies, like the history of the movies. Like there is something larger than life, cinematic, almost halt, like spectacular. And it, it doesn't even have to be kind of like a big bombastic sequence, but there is something about a certain type of movie that like I, when I watch, I think, okay, I could picture this appearing in a highlight reel history of film and like Hollywood film especially. And I think Del Toro 
captures that feeling in every single one of his movies and almost uses that look in a much more kind of creative and dreamlike way rather than just kind of intentionally making a big bombastic Hollywood film. He makes films that are almost set in like this Hollywood dreamscape um, where it's kind of the style of Hollywood films turned into something lurid and strange and almost surreal. Um, it's, it's even, it's even more dreamlike than the actual films were. And that's something I absolutely thought you know, this, with this one, but I think it's something that's common through a lot of his movies, especially his, his kind of more recent stuff. I'm not a huge fan of when he just kind of goes full, I guess like Pacific Rim, Hellboy, just kind of making kind of a more straight ahead kind of smash him up genre movie. Like that's not my those are not the movies I especially love by him, but I'm willing to forgive him. Though. Like I'm willing to forgive those just because Del Toro is someone who is always going to go where his interests lie. And the man earnestly loves monsters and superheroes and horror and fairy tales and strange, bizarre creatures. And if Del Toro wants to follow his impulses and make a Pacific Rim for a movie, because he wants to play with those particular toys, even if Pacific Rim isn't a movie that I think is especially for me, I'm happy to see him do it because I know eventually he's going to make another Pan's Labyrinth or The Shape of Water, which I actually think is one of the better recent Best Picture winners. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was As you were talking, I was like, wait, I didn't remember you like enjoying that movie. And I went on Letterboxd and not that you had logged it because you don't log everything obsessively on there, but like most of my friends on there actually really liked it. But I think that movie kind of gets shit on a little bit, which I, I enjoyed at the With time. The Shape think- of Water? Yeah. I mean, some yeah. people, yeah, some people do. And like, I, I enjoyed it at the time, but I think maybe it was more just like there were other movies in 2017 that people just liked a lot more. And it was, so that, that was the thing. And maybe that's why I, people like kind of talk about it negatively. Whereas like in a vacuum, it's a solid movie though. I probably would have preferred like Lady Bird win best picture or something, you know? So. I liked it more than Lady Bird. Really? I, honestly. Okay. And you um, like Lady Bird, so that says a lot. I like, yeah. yeah. I like Lady Bird a lot. Um, yeah. Of the movies that were nominated for best picture, I think Phantom Thread is the only one I liked more. Mm, okay. Um, but I was extremely happy with the Shape of Water winning. I thought it was an act, like it was spellbinding and magical in a way that I think most movies that kind of aim for kind of that timeless magical quality don't quite land. And I think the fact that Del Toro was willing to kind of go again outside of the bounds of what would actually appear in kind of those old Hollywood kind of almost Ilya Kazan uh, st- like lit movies. Because I guess K- Kazan and Frank Capra are probably the filmmakers who I think of most with, with kind of that old, Holly- with that old Hollywood look that I think uh, Del Toro has gone for in his most recent movies. I think actually the fact that he was willing to kind of go outside the box in terms of putting characters and situations and types of characters in, into the framework of those older films let him capture the magic of them without falling into the cliche of them. Mm. Um, and I think Shape of Water was ultimately a much more magical film than I think it even got credit for at the time. And, and it's, it, it's one that I still like a lot. I think I might like Nightmare Alley a little more because it's dark and cynical and I'm dark and cynical. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've, I really love both movies and I'm... I am excited and continue to be excited by what Del Toro does. What was interesting with this one though, and I think this kind of goes to the second question you asked about what I thought about him, I guess, making his first movie without any sort of 
fairy tale, fantasy, or fabulous element in it. I, I, I think you know that I don't tend to research movies too much before I go to see them. Same. Um, yeah. Like if I know I'm going to see a movie, I don't watch the trailer. I don't try to read up on the story too much. Like if I actually care about it and I know I'm going to see it, I like to go in as fresh as possible. And I had not seen the original film. I hadn't read the book. So I actually did not know that there was no fantasy involved. And I, there was a part of me that kind of was waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> and I love the fact that it didn't, but you know, I, I was kind of think, waiting for almost the, uh, oh God, what's the, the Ray Bradbury uh, story about the carnival? Oh, something wicked with this way comes. Something, uh, yeah, I was almost waiting for like uh, the something wicked this way comes. Shoot. God, that's I can cannot tell you the last time I heard someone mention that book. I had to read it in like tenth or eleventh grade or something. And I think most people read it. In okay, I didn't realize it was that common of a school book because I, I feel like my one of my AP English or AP Lit teachers like I thought she was a little more off the beaten path than maybe she was, but like I had to do some kind of essay on that thing, and like I thought I was like writing out of my ass the whole time, and I actually got a good grade on it, but like that book was like. That book was a lot of book for uh, for like a sixteen year old. I remember. I, I thought. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, to be fair, I think like the the books that I read in high school were also very strange. So it's entirely <laughs> possible that we both just had very weird high school experiences. The teacher who had me read that book mm-hmm. uh, later left to become a psychedelic drug shaman, um, oh. and now is actually the editor in chief for a, for a magazine. But yeah, I, I had a teacher. Shout out Miss Barnes who like. I mean, just very upfront about the fact that she was just a huge feminist, but like very bold of her to do that in like Pensacola, Florida. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I certainly read a lot of things, but uh, sorry, I got you off track there, but yeah, you, no, you, you, were, okay. you were referencing something wicked this way comes. Yeah. But so I, I kind of just kept waiting for like this fantasy should drop, especially because we kind of got these seeds of something being very strange and not quite right about the, mm-hmm. the carnival. And that never came. And, and I, I, I kind of, it dawned on me, on me at a certain point that, okay, no, this is not the direction Del Toro was going with this movie. And I ended up really appreciating it. Like I, my kind of quippy line about this is the most dark, unnerving and discomforting movie Guillermo Del Toro ever made is one without any monsters. In it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, in, in, a, in a way, like some of the other ones that we've already touched on, like I, as, as weird as places they go to, they ultimately end up being a bit more um, optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, no, this this is the bleakest movie he's made. I also think it's the most political movie he's made, hmm. um, even if it's never made overt. But so much of the movie is about uh, the danger of adopting a lie and living with a lie so long that you believe it, let it become something that shapes you. Hmm. Um, and I don't think it's all that hard to find parallels uh, in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also say, I, I saw... I actually waited in line for like an hour and a half to uh, go to a screening where Del Toro gave a talk afterwards. Hmm. And he oh, did yeah, kind I, of- I was going to ask, I, I, I thought you had said you went to one of those. Yeah. Um, they actually overbooked the screening. So I had to like wait in line forever just to make sure I actually got in. And I was like, barely made it in. Hmm. But he did talk a lot about how, yeah, this was a movie he made uh, with kind of the modern world and very much in kind of the back of his mind. Um, and so I don't think kind of those conclusions that I came to while watching the movie that there are some, oh, there, there are some references uh, to Trumpism, to vaccine skepticism, to the way we've reacted to COVID. And I, I, or, I or even like, uh, I don't know, I, I, not, I don't want to say 
necessarily specifically QAnon, but people's uh, willingness to disbelieve in anything that yeah. they no, I, that, no, that they want to believe I, in. I absolutely agree with kind of uh, QAnon and kind of the spread of conspiracy theories as, okay. as something that you can. Which is kind you, of I mean, what, can, what, what, what do you make of him being like I, I somewhat being inspired by that stuff, but like deciding to do it through uh, an adaptation of a movie that came out seventy years ago. Well, so one thing that what what I do actually think is interesting about the talk he gave. Uh, he was very clear that this was not a remake of the movie. This was a new adaptation of the book. Okay. Um, and I, again, I haven't seen the yeah. original movie and I haven't read the book. Me neither. But, I, I, and I think it, the original is on Criterion for those who are interested, but I figured I would just kind of like go in fresh. I, I did look it up though. And it looks like most of the main story beats are the same, but there are some pretty substantive differences, especially mm-hmm. uh, with the original movie. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is something... Again, one of one of the things about kind of those kind of old Hollywood films is it's very easy to read a sense of Americanness onto them. Because again, that old Hollywood look is something that is kind of quintessentially American. It is Hollywood filmmaking. And I think Del Toro kind of specifically going back to those waters, it, it kind of did create a thread between uh Bradley Cooper's Stan Carlisle, and again, America. And again, I'm, it, this is not a didactic film. This is not uh, Stan Carlisle is America and all of kind of the mistakes he's making are literally the mistakes that we have made. But I do think that there is some connective tissue there and it feels like this, the style that he used in this movie is a way to kind of bring this character and del toro's political consciousness together and i don't know i think it's it's a political film but it's also i think ultimately a philosophical film and even more just an incredibly well-told story um like one thing before i get onto the ideas too much just because this is the thing that stuck with me so much about the movie um i'm not going to spoil exactly how the movie ends sure but I will say you're going to know how the movie ends within 10 minutes of the movie starting. As soon as a certain thing happens, like I, I knew exactly how this story was going to end. And Del Toro actually said he assumes that everyone in the audience is going to know how the story ends. Yes, I'm, so, I'm a bit of a dummy because I, mean, I would say the ending made sense to me, though I didn't necessarily predict it. I'm, I'm going to try to avoid spoiling what that ending is until sure, we get to a point sure, where we sure. talk about it. But I guess for me, that ending and that kind of inescapable fate is hanging over Stan Carlyle's character like, like an overcoat. It's something that is, it, it is this fate that you just know is waiting for him. And watching him almost kind of desperately try to prove himself to be more than that and, and, def- and desperately try to prove that he, he is someone other than who he is and every single choice he makes kind of leading him towards this inescapable fate because that is who he is. There is something incredibly hard to pull off about that type of predetermined fatalist ending. And I don't know, I, I was inc- like, just as a writer, I was incredibly impressed by just the script of the movie. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the, the fact that you... It, it, per, you 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 saw the ending, but that didn't like 
that that only enhanced the experience for you as opposed to just like ruining for you. I think it tells, yeah. says something about the storytelling. Yeah, part, part of the joy of the script and part of the joy of the movie is just trying to see how exactly it gets to this point. And I think the moment where it actually, the other shoe does drop and we do actually, it's so hard for me to like not say what the ending is when I'm talking about it. But um, I think is, and it's probably the most incredible moment of Bradley Cooper's career for me. Hmm. I'm, I've historically not been a huge fan of his. Hmm. Um, and I think this was actually the first movie that made me buy into him. Um, like actually buy into him. And it helped that I saw this actually like a couple of days before Licorice Pizza. And so kind of the shot chaser of that. Bradley Cooper had a very good late 2021 as far as I'm concerned. But I know there is something very pathetic but bombastic about his performance that is both very lived in, but also the type of fantastical, incredibly Hollywood type performance that I think the role really called for. And I thought just that moment at the end um, where the thing happens was just some of the absolute best acting in his career. I don't want to keep awkwardly talking around that. So let me just ask you about the first half of the movie then, and then we'll just call it a spoiler section. Taking into account everything you just kind of expressed about your feelings about Del Toro, like how how did you, how did you feel about the, 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 the two distinct worlds he created in this movie. And the, I mean, cause I, th- I, th- I think what's interesting about the carnival is that like, I mean, yeah, there's some like dark stuff going in there, but you know, at the same time, like, I, I feel like I pretty early bought into this family. And I think there's an interesting scene where uh, some of, later in the movie where some of the members of that carnival come and uh, visit uh, Stan and Molly when they're at a different point in their life and, and they're in a different setting. And it's like, Oh, well, yeah, you know, like, well, he, uh, Stan was maybe looking past this the whole time he was there and is kind of uh, set aside from them in this scene. I, I do kind of buy this, like, makeshift family he created here. And in a way, it gives you a glimpse of, like, another life that Stan could have lived if he wasn't, like, looking ahead in the way that you alluded to already. It's like uh, th- there's a version of this where he just, like, lives a nice, simple life on the, as part of this carnival or something like that. And his ego, his ambition, uh, desire to get away from uh, where, where, whence he came, uh, all of that absolutely gets in the way of it. But at the same time, like, I, I enjoyed this setting that he creates in the first half of the movie such that, like, it's like, oh, uh, this is a, this is actually in some ways a pretty, a pretty fun hang, uh, even if there's, like, some dark characters going on over here. And I, I, I it felt like a... Uh, not as much of a departure for Del Toro, maybe as like the more noirish aspects of the second half of the movie, sure. and maybe maybe that's why I was like so comfortable there. And I was like, oh, like this is like a different cast of characters, but it it still feels a little bit more like Del Toro. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't know, this is interesting. Like, wh- what did what did you ultimately think when you when you came into this setting? I know you said you were kind of waiting for another shoe to drop anyway, but like, what did how did you feel about like just how he how he created this literal carnival? I mean, first off, the actual design of that of the world of the first half was incredible. The The look of the carnival was sur- surreal and dreamlike and beautiful and incredibly well designed, not just in terms of kind of the spectacle, but in terms of the way the spectacle allowed for this, this, this kind of beautiful shadowing. Um, I think The Shape of Water probably got a production design nomination, but like when you think about it, like for everything that movie has going for it, I mean, it was, I, I don't know if it was exactly like the most intricate uh, oh, it absolutely it? was. I mean, not to, not to kind of go back to The Shape of Water, but I think part of what is so special about the movie 
is the way he makes these very constrained spaces feel magical. And the yeah. actual the actual work that goes into making scenes like uh, Eliza's apartment uh, so suitable for kind of these kind of stranger and more magical, almost musical-esque set pieces. The actual subtle work that goes into that is incredibly difficult. And actually, part of what is so interesting about the production design in this movie is the subtlety of the spaces in the second half. And we can get back to those later because, but I think- Yeah, yeah. I don't want to undersell Shape of Water. It actually did win production design. I, I guess my more my point was that it, this has had such a different feeling from that. Yeah. It, it was, it was, it was visually, it was like, so- It was more splendid. Yeah, you, you just like went for it in it went for it in a different way, not necessarily a better way. Yeah. Um, no, and I actually think part of what is interesting is the way that as eerie and strange as it is, the wild, surreal, dark and eerie carnival feels more comfortable and welcoming than kind of the cold urban spaces of the, the second half. Um, and a lot of that is production design. Like uh, if you look at Again, Kate Blanchett's office in the second half, it is unrealistically long. <laughs> like, and that's it's actually something that is very intentional. Like Del Toro joked that he was making he made her office into an alley. Um, he, he needed more alleys in the movie. Um, <laughs> but again, it's like that is not how an actual like psychiatrist's office would look. Um, maybe you have that kind of chair, but that's about it. Yeah, but the whole thing is it is actually unnerving and too long and makes you feel like, again, like you're, you're in this very off space. Um, and I think a lot of those urban spaces in the second half feel almost more uncomfortable than the carnival does, which I, I do think kind of goes to your point about how those kind of strange, bizarre characters do feel much more like a family. Um, and it's interesting because I think you said something about how it was a family he made for himself. And I would actually make the argument that if anything, it was a family that he was an interloper in and almost disintegrated with his very presence. Oh, no, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I just meant it was a family he could have been a part of. And yeah. uh, No, he could have been a part of it. But yeah. if anything, he was the unwelcome presence. And I actually think one of a really interesting choice with Stanton as a character is we're never really meant to see him as a particularly good person. Yeah, yeah. And, there's never, it's not. There's, it's not even like a point where you're like really all. It's not like you're cheering from him and then you're like watching him like turn into something else. Like he, he, he basically. I mean, I'd say he mostly is who he is. He is who he is. I'm not saying like. And again, this is not saying he is an evil. Like the opposite of a heroic or good person is not an evil person. And again, I'm not going to go towards what the end. Like go at what the ending is, but. Because I think that has a lot to say about what kind of person Stanton actually is. But from the beginning of the film, we get enough seeds of something being not sinister, but almost destructive about him. Like we don't understand the context for the scene of burning on from the beginning of the movie. Or the context for his sobriety, which is referenced no. a lot. But we get, but again, there are little seeds of something being off from the moment we meet him. Um, and I would say, even in his introduction, like even in kind of his first encounter with the geek, 
Um, I think it is very intentional that we never really see a moment of real sympathy or pity from him to someone who is in this very sad situation. And I think it is very intentional that most of his, again, actions towards this, this person are almost disdainful and almost placing himself above. Uh, it's easy to... And, and when, you, when you say this person, you mean the geek? The geek. I thought, I mean, if, if there was an area where I thought he was more sympathetic, I thought it was when they were contrasting how he was treating him versus how um, Willem Dafoe's character was treating he's, him. I mean, he's not treating him like Willem Dafoe's character is, but is he, is he, there's a difference between... There's a difference between kindness that is motivated by empathy mm-hmm. and kindness that is motivated by thinking you are thinking someone is pathetic. Okay. Yeah, sure. And I would say a lot of Stanton's actions towards the geek have much more to do with him thinking the geek is pathetic than anything else. I would agree with that. But yeah, but I think we see a lot of seeds of just something being off with him enough yeah, to yeah. never fully buy into him as an old Hollywood heroic type. Yeah, and I think to the Tony Collette and David Chatharian characters are, uh, I think they're fairly charming to some extent. And oh, absolutely. They're, they're dynamic, and it's like clear from the moment he like enters their orbit that he's like he's not there just to be their friend. No, um, I'm actually really glad you you kind of brought them up because one thing I really wanted to talk about is the performances from just the ensemble as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, and this is something that's true about a lot of Del Toro's films, but he his films are often filled with incredibly rich, incredibly well portrayed ensembles. Yeah, let's um, keep let's keep the uh, Kate Blanchett and Richard J- Jenkins part of it. We'll keep that in the spoiler yeah, section. But I yeah, we, we'll we'll get to them later. Yeah, but, uh, oh, but on the car- but yeah, on, 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 on all the carnies, I I I do agree though. Um, and actually, I would say that David Strathairn uh, for me was with the possible exception of Blanchett, whose Oscar campaign I'm willing to fund out of my own pocket. <laughs> um, with the possible exception of her, I think Strathern was probably for me the most impressive performance of the movie. And when you're in a cast that includes, you know, uh, Ron Perlman and Willem Dafoe, that's not too shabby. Uh, and again, I thought that every single, every single actor in the uh, carnival section um, did a lot to make their characters feel bold and with kind of a lived in internal life that their place in the story didn't always allow them to showcase like even if we never saw the backstory of every single character we felt for them as people and i think strathan's character was maybe the most well fleshed out and what he did with making this character who is kind but ultimately shell-shocked and sad and broken just that performance was incredible to me. And it's, it's, I think it is with the exception of Blanchett, the one that I have spent the most time flashing back to since I saw the movie. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say I per se flash back to anyone, but I think it's interesting. You talked about just them maybe elevating the parts. Cause I, I feel like to whatever extent they were doing that, that's, that's what Rooney Mara had to do also in that, I I feel I, I mean I've seen a little bit of criticism thinking that there wasn't a ton to that character, but like I still I feel like agree I agree with that to an extent. So. Yeah, but I I still feel I I I can't necessarily disagree either. But I still feel like there are just certain uh, references to her past, and that combined with like some of her actions, I feel like I still at least kind of got what was motivating her, even if 
the movie maybe didn't make a ton of time for her either. So no, I, 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 and I agree with that. I think more of my issue with Rooney Mara's character. And again, I think to be clear, I think Rooney Mara did the absolute best job mm-hmm. possible to do with what she was given. But I think her character was almost meant to be more of this sim- symbol of purity and symbol of the path not taken. And again, because her character was so much of a symbol, we didn't really get as much depth from her. And I think it was especially noticeable because she was in so much of the movie. And so I do think the character was a little thinner than she Mm -hmm. could have been. It didn't ruin the movie, but I think anyone who wasn't fully satisfied with the depth of that character, I I don't think that's an unfair reading. Um, It's not Rudy Mara's fault, but she was kind of there to serve a purpose in the story. But in general, though, I, I think going back to kind of what you brought up before about the carnival as this kind of warmer place, I do think kind of the performances did a lot to elevate those characters into feeling more of like that, into creating more of a lived-in family they other than we otherwise could have gotten. And yeah, yeah, there's some there's some dark stuff going on there with respect to like whether it be especially the with Willem Dafoe's character. But I mean, I guess the way he's actually pulling the strings and stuff. Um, and I mean, I guess every, like what we come to know about like all the, um, the alcohol there and um, that unfortunately, I mean, so we're, we're led to believe that like, uh, I get, let's just, let's just call it a spoiler jump off. Cause I was about to spoil something too. And like, I mean, again, I think by the time people, I mean, actually, this is not going to, this is going to come out way sooner than the last couple ones you did uh, just cause I've, I burned through a lot of the stuff I had in the can, but uh, so this will probably actually still be in theaters when people listen to it. Um, but I think, I think Ben and I would both recommend this movie. I think I, I, obviously Ben Woody spoken very highly of it. I, I definitely liked it too, though. I mean, I don't know if I had quite as strong of a reaction to it. And I think it's, I mean, you're, you're never going to really get bored at a Del Toro movie. You can say that if nothing else, but I think there's a lot more to hold on to in this movie for sure. Do you, do you have anything else you want to leave the people with before we talk about spoilers? Yeah. The one thing I would say is go into this movie and let it overtake you. Uh, there's a lot to chew on with it and a lot to think about after you watch it. But for me, the best way to watch the movie is let this kind of strange and sinister dream overtake you and just go where the film, go where the movie takes you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So everyone like, well, this will be timestamped. So if you want to, if you haven't seen Nightmare Alley, but you have seen the card counter, you can, you'll, you'll be able to jump ahead easily. So just pause now or whatever. Um, we're led to believe that Stanton straight up kills Pete, right? Yeah. 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 I, because I, 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 one of the pots and I read was like, oh, it may or may not have been intentional. I'm like, um, oh, no, no. Whether it's intentional or not is actually, a, I think, a you think, you think it is, you think, oh, so you think that is supposed to be ambiguous? It is ambiguous. Oh, okay. Okay. But no, but he is responsible for his death. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, I mean, I guess when I, when I was referring to like all of the darkness and stuff going on at the carnival, I, I kind of had it in my head that that was like more of a murder than maybe we're supposed to think it was, I guess. So no, to me it wasn't a murder, but he was very way, excited to get his hands on that. The book. darkness comes from his reaction to it. I would say I he don't think... really seem racked with guilt at all. No, but that's the point. Yeah, he's uh, not. He's not a good enough person to be racked with guilt over it. <laughs> yeah. Again, the the dark element of his character does not come from motivation. It comes from his reaction to his own actions. Mm. Um, which again, I think, in the context of the movie's larger, like larger ideas, is interesting because again. Most people who do, again, bad things, they're not always driven by quote unquote evil motivations. But what is your response when you've realized you have done something wrong that has caused someone hurt that has, again, created harm within the world? 
that to me, I think is a much more interesting text test of character. And in the context of the movie, what we learn about, like to me, it's it, the interesting thing is less that whether uh, Stanton Carlisle killed Pete or not, um, like intentionally killed Pete or not. It is the interesting thing is that upon Pete's death, he immediately took the notebook that he knew Pete would not have wanted him to take and did not in any way reveal uh, the cause of this, that he basically did not feel any need to kind of assuage his guilt. Um, he was not driven by guilt. It's ambiguous how much guilt he actually felt. That to me is much more re like revelatory about his character. And now that, okay, so we're past the spoiler jump off. Yeah, you say whatever um, you want. Okay. I don't think Stan is an evil character. And I don't think he's meant to be seen as an evil character, but he is a pathetic character. And he is someone who spends the entire movie trying to convince both himself and the world that he is a great man. And his very last action in the movie is choosing to be the geek. Yeah, I think and it's important you say great man because it's not even like... I mean, necessarily a good man. Like a good man no. implies like you're he doesn't like, want to be a good man. You have a moral a compass. Yeah. Yeah. Just a great um, as in like, I'm amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, I think it is very important that the way his response to being asked to be a geek and with the knowledge, with our knowledge that he knows everything about what being a geek entails. He has seen what this process is from the other side and he's voluntarily submitting himself to it. It's not just, I'll do it. It is, I was born for it. I think now that we're past the spoiler point, the, the thing that like I was trying to avoid saying is for me, it was very clear from like minutes into the movie. Yeah, he was going to be the geek. He was going to be the geek. And watching him, and, and what I didn't kind of want to say earlier when I was talking about the dynamic with the geek is in that moment, part of what is so interesting about his reaction to the geek isn't just that he thinks of the geek as pathetic. It's that he thinks of the geek as pathetic because he thinks of himself as more than this. And so much of the movie. Is yeah, so I'm trying to prove that's the case. Yeah. But it's basically, it's also him building layers and layers of fiction around himself, trying to kind of delude himself into thinking he's someone he isn't. And I think part of what is so interesting about Blanchett's character is the way she she sees through those delusions. Well, so she she sees she sees through him initially, and then and is is try, tries to manipulate their act a little bit. He actually does like I guess is able to read her and gets kind of lucky in doing so. Oh and... no, he, no, he can't. He so I think it's very clear that like all of the ways that he is like getting one over on her are things that she basically tricked him into doing, or manipulated him into doing, or knew that. He what, what about the gun thing? Oh, and the, I would say, uh, out, I say outside of the first scene, like where the first scene they meet. Right, that's what I was saying. He, I, I was saying he got lucky with the gun thing, and yeah. then that piqued your interest. I thought, I, sorry, more. I thought you meant with their dynamic as a whole. Oh no, 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 no. I, I just meant she, she calls it out that first scene where she shows up. He yeah. gets lucky with the gun thing, and that piques her interest a little more. And then they, uh, and then they kind of go into business. So, what did you think about like the way that like she? Because it sounds like you were like very taken with her performance. What did oh, you think absolutely. about the? What did you think about the way uh, she approached him after? And did you see? Did you see the twist coming with her as well? So, the only the, the reason I did outside of the fact that kind of the, the wounded damsel in distress 
character that Blanchett was playing was a little simple to for Kate Blanchett. And I feel like we should mm-hmm. very often expect Kate Blanchett's characters to be more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of the movie, I, I, it's interesting because I don't think this movie is a traditional film noir. And actually some of the people who I've seen uh, critique the movie have been critiquing it because they, they're critiquing it on the basis of this movie is failing as a film noir. The, the scope, the pacing, the kind of psychodrama, like the, the, the sweeping epic psychodrama, it's not quite like what a classical film noir would be. Well, I th- I've seen people critique it too, just saying she's like an archetype of a character in a noir. Well, sure, sure. But uh, so what, what I mean though, and what, what I'm getting at with the kind of the larger note about the film genre is I don't think the movie is a film noir. I think Del Toro is using the film, like film noir as almost a setting. And I think Blanchett's character is using kind of the classical archetype of the, the film noir femme fatale but diving so deep into it that it becomes something almost mythologically powerful and mythologically terrifying in scale. Like I've said, this is a Del Toro movie without any fantasy, without any horror, without any overt fabulism, but it is the most unsettling movie he's ever made. And I think Blanchette almost embodies something outside of herself in that moment, or that her character embodies something outside of herself, like almost this like, primal primal demon that is so far beyond stan carlisle's kind of simple sad and pathetic man that he's just powerless you think she's in it for more than money also though in a way like the way she like actually i i I kind of bought absolutely i kind of bought that she was like getting something else out of trying to get him to open up on that chair beyond playing a, a con for money yeah that's something else is power and that's something else. It, it's not that she's trying to gain power, which I think is the difference between the two of them. I think so much of, of Stan is driven by him being this person who is trying to prove he is more than who he appears to be or trying to put on, again, this veneer of being something he isn't. And I think Blanchett's character is someone who knows how powerful she is, who knows everything that she is capable of and just enjoys using that power. I think for me, that's a pretty major difference between them. And I think there is something incredibly delicious about watching her spin these kind of subtle hints that lead him towards, uh, again, the way the movie ends, that leads him towards uh, murder. And lead and and lead him towards that moment in her office. That if I had to compare it to any scene in anything ever, and this is very different from what this movie is, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like you've seen The Good Place, right? Mm-hmm. I could not stop thinking about the moment at the end of season one, where spoilers for season one of The Good Place, where uh, Ted Danson's Michael kind of reveals the fiction and kind of this like simple like kind face breaks into kind of this like mm. evil sinister laughter. Um, it's very different, and this one was played uh, much more darkly than I think The Good Places was. Mm-hmm. But for the record, I actually love The Good Place. Oh yeah, I know. Um, but I don't know. I just found it like I, I I found it kind of interesting the way kind of her cold face breaks into kind of this surreal and sinister laughter, um, and it just it made me think of that scene. 
And I think Blanchett as an actress does such an incredible job of creating a, a character, but also creating this fantasy mask around the character and both feel entirely consistent and coherent and incredibly powerfully defined. Um, and that's a big part, like I said before, I'll say it again, I like Kate Blanchett deserves an Oscar this year and I will die on that hill. But I think the contrast between those two characters and the contrast between the power of those two characters and something is, is really interesting and something we actually see depicted visually a lot. Like it's, again, it's the most obvious way to kind of depict power imbalances, but just look at the varying heights that, that kind of Del Toro places them in. Like a lot of the time when they interact, Cooper is crouched or lying down or in some way vulnerable. And I, th I think the first and second half are, they're, they're, it's, it's, this, it's all the same movie, but they feel like very different movies. Not in a way that's uh, like, again, problem, like a problematically like discordant for me, but there is definitely a jump between the, sur the surreal, but kind of familial comfort of the carnival and this very cold and unsettling urban space of the second half. And I, and I think that Del Toro very consciously places us in a lot of set settings that feel uncomfortable. Like I, I mentioned Blanchett's office, but that scene- of, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, but that scene in the jail uh, with the lie detector test. Okay, I, I, I wasn't sure that was a jail or that was like the basement of Richard Jenkins' house. I, wait, it may have been a courthouse, but oh, I took it so, to be like, I took it to be like the bowels of like the mansion that Richard Jenkins lived in. Uh, but that, that that I had that in my head too is like that the, the one other really creepy setting, which kind of what you were getting at earlier. I, I think that more falls into the, like the um, the production design of something like The Shape of Water, where yeah. it's like uh, kind of drab but like serves its purpose very well. But yeah, and again, uh, er, like Richard Jenkins has a at this point a very successful. Uh, he, he, he is two for two with Del Toro, as far as I'm concerned, because um, I thought he was fantastic in The Shape of Water, and I and I thought the absolute terror he gave, uh, he he endowed this kind of weak and flat and familiar character with in in Nightmare Alley was incredibly discomforting. Well, I mean, I, I, the one thing I think was interesting about him, I guess, and I was thinking more about how you were saying earlier, whatever really led to, um, never led to be sympathetic with Stan. And I, I feel like in a certain way, like there's a version of the movie where like you're rooting for them to, to rip off the rich people. Yay. Like those are the people that deserve it. Like we can steal from them, eat the rich, all that. I think that's the narrative that Stan thinks he's like, spinning. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's, it, it's so interesting that like, I mean, I don't think we're led to believe that, uh, uh, Jenkins character, his name's, uh, I think his name's Grindel. And I think we're, I think, I don't think we're led to believe he's supposed to be a saint, uh, Absolutely but, I think, not. but, but, but I think the combination of like the, the pathetic things we, all the pathetic aims we see Stan having all of the deception he's engaged in that combined with the fact that like Richard Jenkins is able to kind of create this guy that again is like, has a pretty dark side, but also like uh, we see him at some pretty low lows in a way where we do actually, we are actually sympathetic for him um, in well, some, I, in some ways. I, I think what's interesting about the relationship between uh, Carlisle and, and Grindel is I think from the beginning, we're le we're led to believe that he is a, a fairly sinister, unpleasant character. 
mean, even just kind of the way he talks about, again, like this woman who he basically caused to die. We're never meant to see him as especially sympathetic. But I think Carlyle sees him as someone he can manipulate because he thinks of himself as in control. He thinks of himself as great and smart and clever and no one else can measure up because they are not as, again, great of a man as Stan Carlyle. Or gifted, yeah, not as gifted. Not as gifted. But the moment where Jenkins kind of goes into that speech of, of liking to hurt people and hurting, and, and where we actually see the darkness in his eyes and Carlisle sees the darkness in his eyes, there is a moment of Stan realizing that he is in what he is in deeper waters than he saw. Even yeah. though he, he, he'd been very explicitly warned about that earlier too, yeah. and just and totally ignored it. Uh, every, everything in the movie has tried to warn him on um, whether it's the tarot cards that Tony Collette's character reads for him, or, you know, it's more explicitly Rooney Mara continually telling him not to do is that this is a mistake that he, like, I think the movie, the characters in the movie and the movie itself give Carlisle a lot of signs and a lot of chances to, again, to wake up and realize that he is on a path towards his own destruction. But because he is so deluded by the, by the lie that he has allowed himself to believe, he can't change his fate. Like there's something, there's something kind of almost Greek tragedy about it. Um, where you have characters who, again, end up in fairly terrible fates, ultimately by their own choices. And it is, is hubris probably just like, it, it, it's what, it's, it's what makes, makes him just like miss that he's being played by Cape Blanchett the whole yeah. time. I think like he, he, he never for like, he, he just think who find, find kind of a more perfect femme fatale name. In so much as like, I, I don't think he ever really considers that, that like, she's not just like on his team and he hasn't like got her to bought into him. And he, that's why he's so caught off guard. He, he, it's just he's he's so he's so confident in his own in his own thing, and that everyone's going to go along with him. Even though even though as he'd already been kind of losing Molly at that point, he's still like yeah. he's still pretty convinced that Lilith is like is with him, and never really considers it till the moment he realizes that he was he, he was just again like you said in over his head. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple other odds and ends we can go back and talk about, but I, I guess I'll ask you again about this final scene because you're more alluding to it earlier is that is is that the turn when you said that was like the the best thing you've ever seen bradley cooper done were you specifically referring to the last scene i was referring to the last scene yeah Yeah, okay again just that moment of him fully embracing his own nature and fully succumbing to his fate and not just accepting you know that he he is the geek he has always been the geek this has always been the fate waiting for him but choosing it because this is what he feels like he deserves. This is who he feels like he is. Um, I'm not sure how the movie really conveyed the passage of time that was supposed to happen there. I think I read somewhere. Yeah. I I, I wouldn't say we have a clear sense of it. I I think, I I don't know if it was just when I was like reviewing like the Wikipedia plot summary, they seem to think it was like years that had gone by at that point to when he gets there, which would kind of make sense that it would like take him a little bit of suffering to like get to that point. But I, I didn't grasp it in the moment, but at the same time, like I said, uh, while I didn't predict it from the start, because I'm not as smart as Guillermo del Toro assumed I was going to be, I was like, oh, like 
this tracks like it 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 clicked it certainly clicked for me and i i thought it all i thought it all kind of like rang true based on what we'd seen about him and what we knew about where he'd come from i was like this this is a pretty brilliant way to end this movie yeah. and i kind of like and i and i'm a bigger bradley cooper fan than you but i was like this is kind of cool because i've liked a lot of the different things he's done but it feels like he's emoting in a different way than i've ever seen him emote no i, I would agree with that like again it's not that i've ever thought he was a bad actor it's just he's someone I've never kind of fully bought into the hype with. Um, and I think this was, for me, just kind of a welcome show of a range and a welcome show of him being to embody something wilder and more vibrant, like internally vibrant, than I really thought he was capable of. I, I, I love the movie a lot. And I know we have, we have to talk about uh, the card counter too. So I don't want to go on for like an hour and a half with this one. Yeah, we're already, but, we're already close to an hour. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll ask, any, anything else important we didn't touch on yet with Nightmare Alley that you want to touch on before we, before we wrap it up? Yeah, I mean, nothing specific. I mean, we've, we've talked about the cast, uh, which I thought is just kind of one of the best ensembles of the uh, year. As far as other people popping up in this cast, I want to shout out uh, Holt McElhinney, who I really only know from uh, Mindhunter on Netflix, but it was kind of cool to see him get to be in a movie like this as uh, kind of Richard Jenkins' right-hand man, who, I mean, makes the most of limited screen time as opposed to just being like a, um, I don't know, just a, simply a goon for hire for that guy. He it's clear like he makes it clear that he has some other kind of like connection and loyalty to him that i that i thought uh i, th- I thought it really came through in a limited screen time and also like mary steenbergen um yeah i, yeah, I, was, I was mentioned ted danson earlier uh oh, she's actually married to him i was like wait is that mary steenbergen like it took me like two scenes to, like actually like realize that was her and like that was, it was kind of cool to like she like popped up in like a pretty like crucial devastating intense moment in like a movie like this yeah well actually that her her final scene I think is a really, again, powerful way of depicting that not only is Stan, you know, not the master of his own fate, but even kind of, so like, I think toward, as the movie goes, like reaches its end in like the second half, um, so much of Stan's self-perception is driven by his belief that he is accomplishing something powerful with uh, his, it basically this, this kind of like fake medium thing. And maybe it's not him being great, but like, I mean, in a certain way, he's actually kind of right in how dangerous it can be if you're preying on these people in this way. Well, Pete, like the other characters were right about how dangerous. Well, oh, right, right, right. And I, th- I mean, I think the, in the, the, I think the movie kind of understands like the, that those people are right too. Yeah. Um, but the whole point is Stan kind of allows himself to believe it's like, oh, you know, I'm helping people, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very obvious case of self-delusion. Oh, yeah. But I think kind of that that moment of Steenbergen kind of murdering her husband and then committing suicide just as a result of this lie uh, that Stan has told them, their son has told them he's waiting for them. It is kind of the ultimate way of showing that not only are you not as great as you believe as you believe yourself to be, these great acts that have quote unquote great acts that you've used to convince yourself of that were not what you thought they were. They were not as noble and not as kind and not as positive as you thought they were. Mm-hmm. Even his greatest act is something that has led to profound tragedy because that's all that he was ever going to be capable of. And I, I thought kind of just that very quiet serenity that uh, Steenburgen plays the character with was absolutely perfect and led to this like very uncomfortable, sur- like dark surreality of that last scene. Yeah. Well, good, by, good job by Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro to 
you know, find someone like her yeah. to in cast someone like her to make the most of a small moment like that. There actually is one thing that I do want to uh, talk about. It's just kind of a, a last thing that I appreciate about the movie. Sure. I mean, this is something Del Toro talked about, but it's also something that has been in the press of, uh, when talking about the movie a lot. The COVID precautions that they took on this movie were incredibly stringent, incredibly strict, and resulted in, I think, a much safer crew than a lot of shoots that have happened in the last two years um, and certain shoots that I have worked on. And I do just want to give Del Toro credit for actually prioritizing the health of his crew and employing what, as I understand, very strict COVID testing and very strict COVID precautions as, as they did. Uh, and they actually shut down uh, production on this and kind of restarted uh, much later when it was actually safer to do so again. And, you know, it's, it's a small thing, but as someone who has worked in production and has in the last year been on sets that were not as safe as they could have been, I just want to give Del Toro some credit for that. Well, uh, yeah, good job. It should be the norm, but you know, good job by him. Hopefully, uh, hopefully more filmmakers, uh, follow suit since it unfortunately seems like we're going to be stuck in this thing for a little bit longer. Uh, but now to talk about something more uplifting, the card counter. (laughs) Oh yeah. Happiest movie of the year. (laughs) Um, it's the newest movie from writer director Paul Schrader. It's did he do anything between this and first first reformed? No, this is uh, it, it was this is his first since first reformed. Yeah, so uh, he obviously like uh, kind of had like um, you know his return to very critically acclaimed work with first reformed uh, a couple years ago or back in 2018, I guess it was. And no, first reformed was 2017. Excuse me. So this same same year as Shape of Water. Um, so it was it, it was actually it hit festivals in 2017, but it like actually like had a release in 2018. Oh, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I was just I was looking at the year right next to it yeah. on IMDb, not doing my. Yeah, it, it was a 2017 con, um, but then it came out I think like summer of 2018. Didn't go up against Shape of Water, but still, uh, it's Paul Schrader's uh, follow up to that. A lot of people might know Paul Schrader as a uh, as you know a uh, just a, a writer that just like you know has been doing his thing in Hollywood for uh, more than 40 years at this point. You know, frequent class. Collaborator Martin Scorsese wrote Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, and but also has like directed his own stuff. Though I actually don't know if Ben if I had seen anything he directed up until First Reformed. I mean, I know there's a few things that are very well received, but that was kind of my like introduction to Paul Schrader as a director. The Card Counter, though, uh, it's it stars Oscar Isaac as a uh, I mean a guy named. Uh, or a guy, quote unquote, I say with finger quotes, uh, named William Tell, who's a, a gambler who makes his living not by like being the big shot on the poker tour, but like just by knowing he's really good at what he does and wanting to keep a low profile, uh, gambles like only only enough to like kind of get by and just win as much as he needs to and uh, bet small, win small, uh, stays at motels rather than casinos, keeps a low profile, does his thing. Uh, we come to learn that he actually has a bit of a dark past. His uh, name was uh, William Tillich. He he was he was in the army. He was uh, very very involved in um, uh, as a uh, interrogation officer in a lot of the uh, the Abu Ghraib uh, torture prisoner abuse scandal. We're kind of brought back to that point when he is like doing his poker thing and he uh, stumbles upon like a seminar being given by hey another guy we've already talked about today, Willem Dafoe, who plays someone named yep. Major John Gordo. He is uh, giving his uh, giving it just a uh, he's kind of like it seems like he's on a bit of a, like a just a speaking tour, but talking about just like you know. I, I don't want to say explicitly call it in interrogation techniques because it seems like he's kind of cleaned up his act a little bit, but he's making money by like, you know, giving different seminars about uh, 
um, interviewing and persuasion techniques and things like that. Uh, and, and when he's there, Tell is approached by a guy named uh, uh, Kirk with a C, played by Ty Sheridan, who recognizes him, slips him his number, says like, hey, it, when he eventually meets up with him, he's like, hey, my my dad was involved in the in, in all the torture stuff like you were. Oh, and I don't even think I mentioned, but uh, William actually did a prison stint as a result of a lot of the war crimes he committed, uh, something that a lot of the higher ups, it seems, escaped uh, both in real life and uh, in the world of this movie. And we learned that Kirk's dad was kind of also a part of it who took the fall. But when he got out of prison, he didn't turn his life around to the extent that William did. He killed himself and uh, did not make things easy on Kirk and his mother. Kirk is now estranged from his mother, blames uh, uh, John Gordo for a lot of uh, the things that just uh, went wrong with his family, wants to kill him, wants William's help. William says, "Uh, I don't know about this. Let me show you how you can have a different kind of life. And he kind of tries to bring Kirk along with him and in an attempt to send him on the straight and narrow, becomes involved uh, with someone named Linda, played by Tiffany Haddish, who has like a is kind of like a financier, runs a stable of financiers who kind of back poker players and uh, for a percentage of their winnings and uh, the kind of like high stakes stuff that William stayed away from. But he's like, hey, maybe I'll take maybe I'll take this person up on her offer so I can make enough money to help out Kirk and I don't know, maybe clear my clear his conscience a little bit. We'll talk about his motivations. Ben, I only recently watched this movie because I just it, it was just very briefly available for uh, people, those of us who uh, don't have LA privilege, and I like I just it just I just wasn't able to get to it, but I was able to watch it on demand, and I knew it was like high up on your list, and and uh, not that I don't trust your judgment, but like I, I saw it pop up on a lot of other people's top ten lists too. Not that it's a movie that's necessarily going to like get get a bunch of awards attention, but like I was like, all oh, right, I. Once I saw it popping up in a lot of other places, I was like, all right, I guess I really need to check this out. And, you know, we've already talked about not knowing much about stuff before you go in. And I mean, you were telling me like, man, I I stayed in the theater for five minutes, not saying a word with my friend at the end of it. And I'm like, what? I, me not having learned anything about this. I'm like, I, I guess I'm really curious now, because as far as I know, this is a movie about a guy who counts cards. And I think one of the more interesting things about this movie it is. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. But like, you know, I think one of the interesting things about this movie, and there's a lot to it, but uh, it derives so little of its tension from the actual uh, cards. Yeah, you know, one of many things that is so interesting about this movie, mm-hmm. never once would I say it romanticizes gambling or romanticizes the way that Will, that, uh, Will is living his life. He's not some I fucking th- underdog that like wins a big hand. He's just no. really fucking good at cards so much but so also, that like, it, there isn't anything to it. Yeah, but also it never actually, it like, I think most gambling movies try to make gambling seem fun, seem exciting, seem like like a sport. And the card counter absolutely does not do it. It is dull and monotonous and purgatorial. And that is much more in line with the way Will relates to it and the way he lives his life. Like... I mean, there, uh, there's a lot we can dive into with this movie and a few kind of bits of cleanup I wanted to kind of give uh, before we like got too much into it. Um, first of all, just for anyone listening, Paul Schrader is a whole lot more than just than some screenwriter who has kind of been like working his way through the industry for a while. He is regarded uh, by many people, especially by screenwriters, as one of the greatest uh, American screenwriters of the of the 20th and 21st century. Sure, I probably that's, understand. That's, I mean, I did highlight Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. I just assume people yeah, know no, those I, are like really I, I, and that's, that's movies. not like about you, Josh, but it's, it's just, I, I do think it is important to kind of like, you know, honor the man's reputation a little bit because like the actual legacy he's built for himself is 
uh, is in for writing specifically on a par with most of the kind of more prominent, I guess, new Hollywood directors of his time. What Scorsese is to directing for a lot of people, Schrader is to screenwriting. And I, I just think that's it, it's something that to me is important to mention, especially because he is personally a writing hero of mine. It's also just very interesting in that, like, I feel like he like was away from the spotlight for a little bit up until First Reformed, and now he's like yeah. kind of coming back with like two really strong movies. I have, you know, I have found it very interesting that of like all of those guys, I would say that Schrader is actually doing his best work late in life. Like the one-two punch of. I, honestly, I would say First Reformed is probably the best movie he's ever written or directed. And I love Taxi Driver a lot. And I don't think the card counter is that far behind. Uh, spoilers, I really loved this movie. Like, look, I, I, I love Nightmare Alley, but the card counter, it's like, I think I have as my like number two of the year. The, the order of those top few is amorphous, but I don't see it being anywhere below my top five. Um, I really love this movie. Uh, and I think it is an incredibly impressive film but also an incredible piece of writing like the actual craft of like the, the thing that like i was weirdly raving about is just the way schrader re like reveals his characters and reveals information about his characters without ever revealing kind of anything that you could list as a bullet point these are their characteristics like that scene of will tying sheets around every piece of furniture in his hotel room and the this incredibly laborious and meditative and ritualistic way that he's doing it that tells me so much more about this character than anything else ever could so and, okay so th that scene which is funny because you were mentioning how you're awake waiting for some other kind of shoe to drop during nightmare alley yeah. i don't think i grasped that those were different rooms when, when i was watching it until like the end and i thought that was i, I thought this was like a some just slightly going off linear storytelling sure. beat where it was like showing him at the end of this. And I thought it was like setting up stuff to think this was going to end in him just shooting himself, but like not wanting to get blood all over the motel room or something. Okay. And, you, and you thought we were seeing that sequence kind of pl played out. I, I just thought they were like, I thought, yeah, I thought it was just like a, is it like an in media res thing? I, I don't know. I just thought it was like they were showing the final scene and then working their way backward. And I thought this was going to end in him like shooting himself, but he had like covered up this hotel room because he was being conscientious before he killed himself. Like that's what I thought it was building towards because I, I kind of had a feeling it was dark based on what you had told me. And so I kind of assumed that. And it would kind of, I mean, I guess it kind of like made a little more sense later on where it was like, oh, like, no, this has more to do with like the life this guy's lived and the way he's currently set up his life than it does with specifically building towards anything super dark, even though the movie does build towards something super dark. Yeah. What, so one thing I, I should bring up with Schrader specifically, um, we don't have to spend too much time on this, but it's, it's again, I think important uh, context for him. When I say like Schrader wrote the book on like classic film criticism, he actually wrote kind of one of the, the preeminent like film criticism books that like most and he's people- still, And he's still doing that on his Facebook page. <laughs> Oh yeah, best Facebook <laughs> like yeah, best Facebook page on the internet. Like ten, 10 out of ten. Um, that's coming like, a honestly, lot, and that's like, saying a lot from Ben, who uh, has yeah. a very enigmatic relationship with social media. <laughs> uh, look, however, I feel about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Meta. Um, <laughs> I believe the company should stay afloat solely to keep uh, Paul Schrader's Facebook page active. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, continue. Yeah, no, it's great. So, but the, the thing with Schrader is he, uh, he like he actually wrote a number of 
very significant um, books on film theory and uh, kind of art house film history to, to the extent that they are still kind of some of the preeminent um, books taught in film school today. Uh, and his favorite filmmaker and kind of the one who is probably the strongest echo in his style is Robert Brisson, who is kind of the, who's associated with this very sparse um, existential and minimalist style that's kind of often referred to as parametric cinema. Um, and Schrader, it's not that his films are solely indebted to Brisson, but it is very clear where the influence came from. And there is something very monastic uh, about both of their styles. Like the, the, the movie that kind of came to mind a lot with the card counter, especially with the ending is a Brisson film called Pickpocket, which is often regarded as his masterpiece and follows a character who has a very different history, but a somewhat not dissimilar way of living their life. And it ends in a very similar way. But I would say this is one of the most Brissonian films that uh, Schrader has ever made. And I think him diving into that very simple monastic uh, and stripped down style um, was an incredibly appropriate fit for a character as damaged as William Tell. Sorry, okay. I, just, I thought it was important to give like the film history context because it is a pretty yeah. important part. Yeah, no, no, I, I haven't seen any Brisson movies, actually. I just looked them up on Letterboxd as you were talking. I added yeah. Pickpocket to my watch list. Um, the, well, the other one you should add to your watch list uh, is probably Diary of a Country Priest. Okay. Because if you're going to find uh, the single biggest influence for First Reformed, it would be that one. Gotcha. Do you think, do you take anything from it? At least I read it as, I mean, do you think William is like aspiring to be better in a way that like some of the other guys, these other characters wrote like in a more explicit way? Does that mean do you take anything from that? Or is it more just about like, should I not really focus on the fact that like he's trying to like stay on the straight and narrow, but more just like, I guess my thing is, it's probably more about the guilt he's living with, if, yeah. if anything, in this movie than, um, than anything than any kind of virtuous uh, path he's on. I suppose that I I could not agree more, and that's something I really wanted to get into with this one mm -hmm. because part of what I love about this movie, I think most movies about guilt or carrying uh, a painful, awful burden. Most movies about those subjects tend to be about absolution, and tend to be about grace and tend to be about finding a way to kind of cast off those burdens and this is a movie that is not about that there well, is i think i think he would you say he's he sees kirk as like a, a means of that end even if that's something that doesn't come to fruition on some level but i don't think he ever fully does i don't think i i think saving kirk is less about redemption and more about saving a version of himself because I think for him, it's not that saving Kirk is a way to kind of, you know, right the scales. Saving Kirk is a way to let him go to sleep knowing that he at least stopped someone else from becoming like him. Um, and I think that for me, I think that's an important distinction because never once does he feel like helping Kirk would let him actually be released from his burdens. And the way he lives his life is not about, it's there. there is nothing fulfilling. There's nothing... Uh, redemptive about the way he lives his life and i think not only does he not think of himself as better than anyone um he thinks of himself as worse and that's why he uh, needs to give himself the structure 
yeah, he's not fi- trying to find a way to redeem himself. He's trying to find a way just to keep going. And a okay. lot of what this movie is, is it's not, it's not about grace. It's not about catharsis. It's about finding a way to keep going when you are carrying a burden that you know you will never be able to release. Yeah, sometimes I roll my eyes when a movie starts out with like a voiceover and I'm like, oh God, here we go again or something. And maybe I, I should just have a little more faith in Paul Schrader that like he's, I'm in good hands and that I don't have to necessarily worry about that. But like when it's like, I never thought I'd take the prison lifestyle. It's like, I'm like, well, man, where are we going with this? But it, I, I, I kind of came to understand it as like, he, he's almost like scared of the fact that he did. So it's like, how can I kind of like recreate something that's like that routine that like uh, doesn't allow me to give in to like any bad impulses, which I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a little short-sighted to be hanging out in this world and doing that, but like, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's just an interesting depiction of a character that like, I, I give Schrader credit because it just, it feels very distinct from a lot of these other male characters that maybe some of the other movies he's written are based on, but it's um, still a guy dealing with a lot of the same uh, issues. It's just, it, it's different packaging and different motivation and in, 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 a, in an interesting setting, like we already, you already touched on how it's like a, you know, we've we've seen poker movies before but it's like it's again he's like using it as a way to like i don't know tell you something about this guy who is just like a very very interesting creation in my opinion and i mean i and i, I want to give oscar isaac some credit for that because like i mean we haven't really talked about him that much yet oh um, i'll give oscar isaac a lot of credit for that yeah 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 and it's i i, I don't know i guess my my overall point just being like it's like it's kind of cool that like you know this it, I mean, and I guess, oh God, uh, there's, there's, a, I guess, there's more to say too about the, the whole, the whole torture aspect of it too. But it's just um, the combination of that guilt combined with like him taking from prison what he did. It's, it's interesting that it kind of manifests itself in uh, this particular story. But like, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I found it pretty, I found it pretty engrossing. Even though, like, I mean, I've seen some criticism, like from uh, even, mul- I've seen multiple friends of mine just thought the movie was boring. I just, I just never got that. Um, it's again and. Okay, I, to me, the two words that generally make me roll my eyes most when I see them in like a review, and uh, we've established uh, in pre- we've established that I'm a pretentious asshole. Um, I, th- I thought but, that was I thought that was nineteen uh, year old Ben, but uh, you can you, I'll, I'll, I'm you, a slightly less pretentious asshole than I was, <laughs> but still a pretentious asshole. Um, but no, the the two words that do tend to kind of make me roll my eyes a, a lot in. When, when I read a review, especially from a non-professional film critic, pretentious and boring. I think that those two words are very often misused. And generally, to me, it's, again, this isn't always true. But when I see someone kind of use those words a lot, what I kind of find myself thinking is, this is someone who did not make a very sincere effort to engage with the film. And I think a lot of kind of the people like, and, and again, it's not true about everyone, but for a lot of kind of the negative reviews I've seen about the card counter, the people who've called it slow, who've called it boring, who've called, yeah, who've, who've called it slow and boring. I didn't feel like they were really willing to engage with the depth of this very purgatorial sadness that, that William Tell is living with. Um, I mean, the, the one thing that I think has been pretty universal has been praised for Oscar Isaac, which I think is very deserved. Like he is probably my pick for best actor this year. He will not get nominated. He will not win. But in a perfect world, he would because what he did with this character was incredible. I don't, even, I, don't, 
I don't even know if Bradley Cooper is a lock. I'm not, I'm not sure. I feel like when I've seen some, he's not, I don't want to go off on a word tangent. He has a better chance than Oscar Isaac, but it's like, it's uh, I, interesting. Truthfully, I don't think either one of them make it. Um, yeah, I've, I've just seen Bradley Cooper like a little more up there in the stuff I've read. And it's well, just funny. We, we were talking about no, two of so, these guys who both are probably kind of deserving that are probably not going to make the cut. Yeah, not to go on a whole tangent, but like from what I'm seeing, Nightmare Alley probably, it's looking like now it at least makes the cut for Best Picture. But I don't think it probably does for a lot of other awards, but whole tangent. Oscar Isaac, I think, has no chance, which is really sad because I think this is his best performance since Inside Lewin Davis. He's probably our best working at one of our five best working actors that doesn't have an Oscar nomination. So that doesn't have an Oscar nomination. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, honestly, I should have double taken. You said doesn't have an Oscar nomination because he absolutely feels like he should have one at this point. Yeah. yeah um, that, or, I mean, I, I really love a most violent year too, um, which is, I think, um, Oh, I think great movie. Yeah. I, 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 I think I've run my take by you before that like they, they gave the imitation game, like all of the, the Oscar nominations that um, a most violent year should have had. Um, I mean, they gave the imitation game uh, a lot of nominations that a lot of other movies should have had, but I, I would be very happy with those nominations having gone to a most violent year. Yeah. But it, it, I, I, it's funny. I think it, I, I feel like there's some similarities in the performance in the card counter, even though it's like very different characters from very different places. Just, I mean, just very controlled performance, but like okay, yeah. has some flashy moments too, where he's able to like, you know, get off some good monologues, but is also just like very intense and concentrated in other moments. And I, yeah. I, I he gets to do a lot. The thing about Isaac specifically that I love, because he is one of my favorite working actors. Mm-hmm who was also very good in Dune, even if he was not called on to do anywhere near but as much as- But also did. just had like a very like uh, blah five years up until Dune. That's what happens when you get stuck in Star Wars hell. Um, anyway, not, not, again, not to go off again too much of being path, but I bet you've gotten a kick out of some of the quotes you've seen on him giving whenever he's asked about Star Wars. These oh days. yeah, it's great. Like, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll do another one if I need another house or something like that. He's like, he's very over it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh, the things I could say about Star Wars. But no, uh, since I don't want to piss off everyone who listens to your podcast, um, let's talk about this movie. But no, so I, I, I think the thing that is so impressive about Isaac for me is you find most, char- most actors falling into either star or kind of, I would say, deep craft-focused actor. Um, like on the one hand, you have actors who are kind of able to dive deep into kind of complex and challenging characters and kind of breathe life into them. It's what we kind of think of kind of more often as like great actors or actors, actors. Like it's easy to kind of focus on the character actors, but even in kind of, in terms of kind of our more driven kind of leaded men, like Dan- Daniel Day-Lewis is, is kind of the obvious example of someone like that. But the star, like an actor with star quality is someone who we just want to watch on screen. They are magnetic. They are larger than life. They're someone who needs to be seen on the biggest screen possible. They have that, again, old Hollywood charisma to them. Oscar Isaac is the rare actor who has both of those qualities, which is incredibly rare. And we rarely see both sides of like that dynamic as like, well-formed in one actor as we do with Isaac. Uh, Because he is an actor's actor. He's incredible at what he does, but he is so intensely charismatic that, you know, you can see him just as easy, easily headlining a big blockbuster as you can something as quiet and introspective as the card counter. And I think- Or a uh, Marvel television show. Yeah. Which he he has coming. Moon Knight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
But I think part of what is so impressive about his performance in this is the way we see the fire and kind of that almost star quality dynamism poke through the surface of this very withdrawn and controlled character. Like there are just moments that are almost chilling because of how electric Isaac is. And he's using that, that megawatt charisma in service of a very broken and withdrawn character with sparks of something uncontrolled and dark inside of him. Um, because these pieces of himself that Isaac's, that uh, Tell doesn't want to let out, he doesn't want to let them out for a reason. Because he feels like if he actually lets himself release, he is going to, on some level, let the demon out. I, I agree with everything you said, and I really like him in the movie too. I'm curious, and I don't know if this is where you want to go next with it, but after hearing yeah. you say that, I'm curious. So what do you make of, um, for one of the other main four roles of this movie, casting Tiffany Haddish opposite that? Uh, such an interesting casting choice. And I, I honestly like wasn't sure how I felt about it when it was over, because it was like, on one hand, I think it's interesting to have that kind of energy in this movie where it's like, um just like such a contrast from him and i actually think the two of them have really good chemistry though there, yeah. there are other moments where i'm like tiffany haddish is like it does seem like she's like on another wavelength uh for when with some some of what she's saying here when we just like are looking at bill just like or i keep calling him bill but uh, I, I guess it's will uh we keep looking it's at been will. like it literally has been three months since i saw the movie so well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you correct. I guess, I guess it is William, but like, uh, I, I feel like William is still like very in it and very like, uh, laser focused at some of the points where while Linda is coming in and just like, uh, you know, just doing something broader though. I do, do think Tiffany had some quieter moments, but it was just like, it, 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 it was very interesting energies to bump up against each other. So like, how did you feel about having like Tiffany Haddish's presence amongst all, all of this really self-seriousness that Oscar Isaac was going for. I would be lying if I said I was excited for her to be in this. And that's, I mean, I'm not like the hugest Tiffany Haddish fan, but it was more just that I didn't quite see how she was going to fit into a Paul Schrader. But the thing I actually should have had faith in is Schrader has a pretty solid history of casting against type and casting uh, actors who don't normally work in kind of the more serious kind of quote unquote yeah, uh, see. one of the one of the um, more interesting things to pop up in first performance, is Cedric the Entertainer. Oh yeah, I, okay. I thought you were going to bring up uh, casting Lindsay Lohan and James Dean in the Canyons. Uh, I had not seen that movie, but I that I guess uh, I, I yes, sure. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, I, Cedric the Entertainer was in first performed and was very good in it. But there, like, I think Schrader is. Schrader is an actor's director in that he is able to get performances out of actors that they might not otherwise be able to bring out of themselves. Like there's an anecdote that I really love from the filming of Affliction, which is a really good and really underrated Paul Schrader movie. Um, but I actually saw, again, the LA Privilege uh, Q&A he gave for that one. Hmm. And he told a story about how he cast... Uh, I mean, he cast James Coburn to play uh, Nick Nolte's character's dad. And Nolte is like this very serious, very kind of methody actor. And Coburn was a, an old Hollywood cowboy. He, he played broad. He was a star. He played, he, he relied on his charisma and he relied on his type. And apparently Nolte told Schrader that if 
they got on set and Coburn did his like star bullshit. He was going to punch him and he was going to leave set. <laughs> and Schrader said it would be fine. And he talked to Coburn about it and he said, and he, he warned him, it's like, you can't do this stuff, your shtick. And Coburn said, well, you know, I can act too. It's just people don't normally ask me to. But they got started and it turned out that, you know, Coburn was doing his, his shtick. He was, he was in his persona. And so Schrader took him aside and he had him read through all of his scenes with like Schrader as, as his reading partner, but he had him use this incredibly like high pitched chipmunk voice. Hmm. And it was so uncomfortable and it was so awkward for Coburn who was apparently so used to kind of living in his masculinity that he had nowhere to hide just from the discomfort, but inside the character. And eventually that's what he did because he just didn't want to be James Coburn doing this voice. So he just dove fully into the character. And then Schrader had him read it normally. And from then on, it just clicked. And his performance in the movie is incredible. Yeah, um, I guess that's, that's another one I've added onto my watch list in the last couple of days. Yeah, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, and that's, that's actually an interesting thing. It's Schrader has a lot more very good movies that he directed than we generally give him credit for. Like a lot of the time, I think there's this association that I had for a while with him as one of the great writers, but as a director, he had Mishima as his like one real masterpiece and then nothing until first reformed. And that's really not true. If you actually look through his filmography, he directed some incredible films, some of which I still really need to see because as I've kind of watched more and more of his like output as a director, I've realized more and more how incredible he's always been. I mean, I do think he's working at his absolute best now, which is still funny to me because if you want to find someone who seems more like kind of a grumpy old man, like Schrader is the embodiment of that. He's a Facebook grandpa, mm -hmm. but he is somehow making the most vibrant and, you know, alive films of his entire career now. I don't know. I've, I've, I've just kind of come to respect him more and more. Like I always respected him as a writer and he's always been someone who was a massive influence on me. But as a director, I've realized more and more as time has gone on, how incredible he is. And it's things, it, it's aspects of the craft, like the performances he gets out of actors giving very non-traditional performances. Like again, Tiffany Haddish talked about in the interviews, she is not like, she's not used to acting like this and Schrader, you know, basically told her it's like she was doing a bad job. Oh, I, I, I haven't read the interviews. She said she was like incredibly grateful to it because like the, the last thing in the world she wanted was for Schrader to like sugarcoat it and like, you know, not push her. And apparently. So you like, you, you like, you like the place you ultimately got her to. I do. It was mm -hmm. different. It was definitely not as, cold and driven as uh isaac's performance that's fine but I, yeah but i like the fact that, that character was on a different wavelength i mm -hmm. like the fact that she was a little more normal a little less intense um because again these characters might as well be in different worlds because i mean you know for for like william tell he's he's been living in purgatory uh, for the last however many years of his life. And, you know, 
everyone else walking around on earth, it, they might as well be in a different world. His existence is private, it's personal, it's interior. And, you know, these characters who kind of walk around freely in the world, who even have the freedom to kind of aspire for greater things, it's like they might as well be aliens to him. I think that might um, be like, I was going to say, I think that might actually be a good point to jump off and give some spoiler warnings because yeah. um, there's, I don't know, it, it, it's, it, it's a movie that builds towards some pretty uh, intense stuff. And, and we, I, I, it's clear it's another one uh, we'd recommend. So you can go uh, watch it. It's rentable at this point for $6.99 on Amazon and stuff like that. And then you can come back and listen to the rest and not kind of give away the really intense stuff this movie kind of builds towards. Um, so yeah, just do that and come back. So I guess in the, we didn't talk a ton about Kirk in the first half of the movie. And it's, it, what's interesting is that like as dark as this movie is, and we'll talk about like some of the, uh, what, what it builds towards. I mean, there, there's like a, there, there, he does take the time to have like a segment of this movie. That's actually like, I mean, kind, kind of a more fun watch than you would expect in maybe a Paul Schrader movie where he is like uh, taking this kid under his wing. Um, and it, inevitably like, you know, things aren't going to necessarily like kind of keep up in that way, but um I'm, I'm i'm curious like uh i mean i, I guess we, we already speculated a little bit on like what his motivations were for like why he was even taking kirk in in the first place but it, it's it, it's a paul schrader movie so i don't think you expected him to like go back to his mom's and live happily ever after uh necessarily i am wondering like what you what you thought of ty sheridan's performance and the the, the story the, the the larger story they told there beyond how that was um beyond what what what, what to beyond what William was using Kirk for. Yeah. Um, so with Sheridan specifically, uh, at first it was a little hard for me to get past my association with him as the star of one of my least favorite movies, uh, Ready Player One, which is a movie I really, really dislike for a lot of reasons. Funny, I, the, the last podcast I recorded was on West Side Story with Josh Brown, who's a Steven Spielberg stand, was like forced in a, into a couple different instances of like saying how, he has to he has to be a defender of that movie not that he thinks it's like five stars but like it's funny we just had a podcast where he had someone like having to cape up for it a little bit <laughs> so. yeah well you don't have to worry about me doing that but yeah no so i was able to get past my association with with uh sheridan as the star of ready player one but i i actually thought did a, a really good job um mm-hmm. again he wasn't kind of called to go to the places that isaac was but i thought he kept up incredibly well i thought there was again, a very organic connection between them. And I thought within the context of the movie, he uh, he was used very well, again, not as a symbol of redemption, but as a symbol of tell to feel like, I think that he at, he at the very least was not a broken tree. And I think what is so interesting about, I think kind of the moment where he finally pushes Kirk to, uh, go see his mother mm-hmm. he does it by torturing him um and it's very interesting that like the way he basically tries to save him is through the thing that tell is basically traumatized by his own participation and like he he doesn't save him by being more heroic than he likes to then he sees himself as he saves Kirk or tries to save Kirk by unleashing what he uses the most evil part of himself. Well, I, I don't even know if he necessarily tortures him so much as he takes on the tor- persona of a torturer 
Yeah. And uh, like tries to like show him a different side of him. Like, cause he's just kind of seen him to that point as a guy that's like on the surface is like kind of gotten over some of what Kirk is still processing himself secondhand and thinks like, that's oh, probably like, a more fair way. Of putting it. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, it's like, look, man, like I, he, he, he probably sees, he probably sees him and thinks like, Oh, I can go kill this guy and then just go back to living my life. Um, because yeah. look, you're just, you're just driving around the casinos and stuff like that. And so I think it, it logically follows that, uh, William thinks like a, a good way to like, kind of convey that is not the case is to like, you know, give this little kid like some kind of like dose of reality to put him on the straight and narrow. And that is when we get that, like, um, I don't know, electrifying scene where, I, I mean, I guess, again, I, I, th- I, th- I think it's like a, while I, I kind of drew parallels a little bit to, uh, most violent year earlier with respect to Oscar Isaac, that, that was something we've never really seen from him before. So that was cool to see him like, uh, you know, dig deep and like, uh, man, put on like, a just like a, like a horrifying persona for like, I mean, it was probably only amounts to like two minutes of screen time, but it's like, Oh wow. Like you can go there, man. Yeah. And again, part, part of what is so impressive about that moment, it doesn't feel like this character is suddenly putting on the persona. It feels like the persona of normalcy is slipping away. It's true, and we, right. and, which I actually think is even more impressive because it's not hard to kind of suddenly play this big, scary, evil, sinister version of yourself. What is hard is to let that poke through the surface of your character and to make it feel like it is the, the truth of who this character is finally being unleashed for the first time. And uh, that's hard. And it's funny that you use that term, the truth of who the character is. And we we just talked about Nightmare Alley, where uh, that character, uh, in some ways, ends the movie in a, in, in a, a prison of sorts. And uh, here we, I mean, it, it's, I get what, so it's implied that he, uh, you know, recreates a lot of the torture techniques on Gordo at the end and then, you know, ends up in prison himself. And it's funny because it's like, it, I mean, I guess this movie in a way like comes like, you know, go, goes 360, whereas like that's more of a point A to point B in um, in Nightmare Alley. But at the same time, like he is like where Bradley Cooper at the end of there is saying like, oh, no, no, I was born to be in it here. I, is it fair to say William seems like more at peace, peace in prison at the end than he has at, like any other point in the movie? I think it's less that he's more at peace mm-hmm. and more that it's all the same. But oh, it, it's, right, it's not yeah. the setting that is... I, I do think he's in a more peaceful place than he is at some points in the movie, but that has more to do, I think, if anything, with this strange connection he has proven to himself he is able to form with another person. Like, and I, I don't think it's important whether or not like his relationship with Lolinda continues into this romance that lasts beyond the bounds of the movie. I think what is important is that he has proven to himself that he is able to form connections with other people. I think that's a really good point because like through so much of the movie, he's like, he's actually, he's actually pretty well put together though. I'd say it's like, he has a slip up of sorts and that's why he ends up in the prison. But at the same time, it's like, we've already heard him say in that initial voiceover, like he's actually like pretty well suited to do it anyway. So he's not going to look like he's like that, like pretty downtrodden as he would as you or i would if we just all of a sudden ended up in prison you know yeah um and i actually think a pretty interesting difference between him and bradley cooper's character so much of stan carlisle and nightmare alley's quote-unquote fatal flaw is self-delusion um 
he doesn't want to see himself as he is. He doesn't want to see the weight of his own actions. William Tell does not have that problem. If anything, he is too painfully aware of what yeah. he has done mm-hmm. and his guilt. And it's something that he can't release from himself. And that knowledge and inability to just let that go or adopt an internally consistent lie of what he wishes reality was, like it seems like Gorgo has done. Mm-hmm. That is the thing that haunts him. And I think it, it's it's really well depicted in the movie that we have Gorda, who is a character who is the, if we're going to say an eviler character than Tell, very obviously the eviler character. But he is someone who does not appear to be burdened with what Tell has been burdened with. And who, when he actually talks about uh, Kirk and Kirk's father, it's, it's it's not that, you know, he can understand why they were haunted. It's, they were soft. And it would be easier for Tell if he were able to believe the version of reality that Gordo believes, because that would let him let himself off the hook. But he's not capable of doing that. He is burdened by the painful awareness of what exactly he has done and what irredeemable evils he has committed. And that is what haunts him. And this version of this character who is so aware of what they have done, who is not attempting to even redeem himself because he doesn't believe he can redeem himself, but somehow remains so empathetic and human. Like, I think William Tell is one of the most fascinating characters we've seen in a very long time. Yeah, it's like hearing you describe him as human just now, it like... I, I, and I would agree. For some reason, my initially, my mind went to a movie that I really liked, though I don't like it went to the movie Drive, which, you know, I love Drive. I know. And, and I love yeah. Drive, too, for like probably a lot of the same reasons you do and a lot of the reasons a lot of people do. But like, I don't think of that that character, the Ryan Gosling character is particularly human in that movie. He's like, I, I think of him more as like a, just like a, a man on a mission and like a, a vehicle for us to like see a lot of other stuff going on around him or something like that. And um, I, 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 I would I, say I, the truth is somewhere between is is somewhere between like I think what Refn does is very specific to the way he views character. Um, yeah, I, I forgot you're a Refn guy. That I, I, yeah. I that could, that could set us off in another two hours. I, should, I probably should. Have gone. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like I don't know. Is this when you think when you think about like following guys around and stuff like that? It's like there's an example of a really good movie to be made, though. Is I guess my point where it's like someone is not quite as human as William is here. You can focus like you can focus a movie around a guy who is really good at something that he does and isn't even necessarily quite as human as the William is, and still make a great movie. Uh, and here it's interesting that like he's like um monotonously good at poker in such a way that like he it, it machine like so like again like i said earlier like the, so little of the movie is derived from like any of the suspense of a of a of a, a poker hand playing out none of it really is other, other and, than the fact that william is constantly losing against america yeah what'd you make of that i mean like the movies obviously has its own political point of view i mean as far as the um i mean i i i'm sure paul schrader doesn't really feel great about torture and what, what our country did in the wars but like i mean it's almost like i mean not that it's a it's yeah, it's, it's obviously not a subtle movie but it's like he's um it's it, it feels like he's trying to is, is do you think he's just kind of making some kind of comment with that about like yeah that yeah we, we did that torture back in like 2004 but like 
America's still kind of like not 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 exactly like you know all peachy clean now. So it's it's obviously unsubtle, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's didactic. Like I again, and the thing with Schrader is he's not someone who is going to say oh like who's going to make a movie where oh this is the point of the movie. This is the sole political message, and, and there, there is no, and everything outside of the message itself is window dressing. Mm-hmm. I think it is very clear that Schrader, uh, a, I mean, a lot of this movie is driven by Schrader's view of America as a country that is weighted by the by its own tremendous guilt and inability to, you know, release the burden of what we have done. Um, that our that the sins that America has committed in the world and not to even get on America specifically, but we, we like that this, that the things that we have brought into the world that have brought harm are things that we cannot write the scales with, whether that's something like Abu Ghraib, whether that is something like slavery, whether that is what we did to, again, the indigenous inhabitants of this land. There are burdens of guilt that America cannot just wash away that we have to find a way to live with and i think that schrader definitely does kind of a micro macro thing on this movie Wartel is both a representation of individuals living with guilt but also kind of this larger again systemic guilt and you know i i do think that kind of this like Mr. America character. I don't remember the exact name of the movie, but it was, because it, it, I saw it three months ago, but it was something like Mr. America, right? It says Mr. USA on Wikipedia. Mr. USA, yeah. Um, who is this very kind of like rah-rah, almost like over-patriotic, like parody of an American um, who is not actually American. Mm-hmm. Um, Russian, I think? I, I double-checked, it's Ukrainian. Oh, okay. Which actually, it's, it's, it's a really funny thing. Like, this is a total tangent, but one of the funniest things when you're outside of the US is seeing these the reductive representations of, like, quote unquote, like American symbolism. Like, it's almost, it's, 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 it's as bad as like anything from a foreign country isn't here, but like, it, it's just, it's really funny. Like, I, I lived in England for a bit and there was this like thrift shop nearby. It was Uncle Sam's American Thrift Shop. Hmm. And it's like everything in the window was like this, like, you know, Independence Day, like Uncle Sam, like over patriotic, like parody mm-hmm. of, of like American patriotism. And it, it was just so funny to me because it, it obviously it's not something you would find in America. Um, total tangent, but just kind of that character reminded me of that. Anyways, on to the character himself though. Um, I, I just I do think that having William Tell's kind of foil, this character who he's never actually able to get one over on or get above as this kind of parody of American jingoism. It's it's not like a direct point, it's not America is evil, but it is America is a place where people are not able to aren't able to find their wins if if we're going to draw any one direct point from it it's that yeah and then i guess in the micro is like that's him not being able to really outrun his past that he keeps getting yeah. confronted with that and even though like america pretty like really put him on a bad path earlier he, he, he still can't really escape like you said that raw raw jingoism in his new life either 
want to ask, I mean, we already touched on the ending a little bit, but I, I, I want to give you a little more space to talk about yeah. it before we finish up, because uh, you said that was like one of, one of the most, you've already expressed to me previously that that was like kind of the, one of the, one of the most moving experiences you've had at the movies this year. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about what it meant for him to like go after Gordo in that manner. But I, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm wondering if like the way you put it to me was that you went with a friend and you guys just kind of sat there for five minutes in silence afterward, just kind of like blown away processing it, however you want to put it. But I'm wondering, was that more that literally that final scene or is that more like the experience of the movie as a whole? It was both. I would say um, it was the weight of the film, but I, the ending was so perfect. And so, overwhelming that I was just emotionally numb. Um, just I think it's it's not just kind of the, the the situation he ends in, but those last images of him in jail and the hand on the glass. It's something that so easily could have felt cliched, but there was something that was incredibly cathartic and graceful about it. But I think the thing that is so powerful about that is that even when their hands are touching across the glass they're not actually touching Mm -hmm. and i think that on some level that he has placed himself in a situation where likely for the rest of his life that this there will always be this distance and on some level that's what he that's how he likes it and that's what he feels like he deserves at the same time, I, like you mentioned earlier, he probably felt some level of contentment. He did. In no, knowing... but that's, that's the thing. It's both. Yeah, but um, in just knowing that he could connect with someone else. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it is both. And I think that you can't ignore the, the bleakness and sadness of it, too. Because I think it's, it's significant that the movie ends with him not able to transcend his past. That end to again, have the, the prison, the internal prison be embodied through the physicality of that glass, because that is something that will always be there for him. Those last images, which are very similar to the last images of Pickpocket, absolutely took my breath away. And I think the fact that we have this scene before of his, his torture of Defoe, and even this moment of him realizing, one, what Kirk has done, and two, that this dead body on the news is Kirk. That entire last sequence, I think my hair was standing on end through all of it. Yeah. Um, so that that was a, even if you didn't necessarily like, I don't know if I necessarily bought that we had seen the last of Kirk when he uh, told William he had taken the money and agreed to it. But the moment you see the Google Earth image or what you had, we had already seen on Google Earth earlier yeah. in the movie and you see it pop up on his phone, and that was a pretty like bone chilling moment. Even if like I still knew we were heading for something dark by the end, that was still like an oh shit kind of moment. No, none the same. No, the actual execution. And again, just on a craft level, because like, my God, I, just, I, I I'm, I'm not normally the guy who like nerves out, nerds out about writing craft. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because I think that most of the way we talk about screenwriting craft, even within the screenwriting community, is incredibly, you know, misguided and not necessarily in service of actually creating, you know, great scripts. Schrader is someone who I will absolutely nerd out about the craft of. And the a- actual execution of that moment 
with this gulf of information between uh, Isaac's character and Haddish's character, where again, we have the, the, this moment of positivity of, oh, he, he went to see his mother. He, he, he texted you this from like his, his mother's house. I forgot exactly how they framed it, but it was, it was in the moment, it was like she believed that he was sending this from his mother's house and that he was there. Um, and this moment of him seeing the actual image that only he would recognize. Mm-hmm. And the way that we're kind of taken along on that ride with him, it, it just, it makes the painful and complicated emotions of that moment that much more palpable. Um, one thing I, I actually want to talk about quickly, because yeah. I do think it's important with Schrader as a whole, because this is another thing that I think people misunderstand about him. Schrader has a reputation for films that are fairly violent. They're like the easy thing is in ta- that the last scene of Taxi Driver. Uh, Schrader is someone who, you know, from most people's perspective, has one foot in the grindhouse and one foot in the art house. But I think that's always been somewhat of a mischaracterization about him. He's someone who's interested in exploring violence, but who is who has very conflicted feelings about cinematic depictions of violence. Oh, that's certainly yeah. borne out here in that, like, you yeah. don't see any violence in the main timeline, actually. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, and even the, the it, it is hard to make a movie about violence that does not romanticize violence because people think of on, of action as cinematic and exciting and as gripping. And even when you try to make that violence inherently chilling or terrifying, there is some aspect of a depiction of violence that is hard to make fully uncomfortable. It's, this, it's the same reason why it's hard to make an anti-war movie um, because people find on-screen depictions of war exciting. But Schrader, uh, especially in a movie like this, is able to make a movie about violence, the consequences of violence that is actually critical of violence without in any way endorsing it. It never romanticizes it. It never, it, there, there, there isn't even an opportunity for torture to feel exciting. It is always depicted as the horrible evil that it is, whether it's through kind of the hallucinatory kind of fisheye flashbacks or the fact or the off-screen depiction of his final murder of Defoe's character. Even if we, uh, I mean, obviously in the scene with, um, the the scene where he attempts to uh scare kirk straight uh that's obviously like there that the whole torture thing is just like used to you know uh kind of tell show kirk that he's in over his head but even even in the last scene like we're not necessarily led to think uh gordo's a good guy but at that point like i think it's clear that like the movie's on the side of you shouldn't really be rooting for him to do this you've already seen he has a life he could go back to and he's uh, made a connection with this other woman like uh this is pretty pointless and not a good thing and to top it off they don't even show it and give you the opportunity to um to uh indulge in it with respect to like uh feeling like he's uh the hero for you know taking out this guy that oversaw our country's war crimes it's no it's it's not an act of heroism it's an act of surrender almost Mm. a surrender to okay this is who i am i'm going to let it out but i'm it's if i like the only thing I can do right now is let it out in against 
again, the person who did it to me and who did it to this, to this kid. It's, but it's never depicted as a heroic act. And just that entire sequence, like, I mean, like you alluded to, and like I told you, I literally, I I said, like, it was my cousin who I saw it with. And we both just sat in complete silence in the theater as the theater emptied out around us, staring at like the blank screen. (laughs) And I actually had a fairly similar response to First Reformed, which I think has actually one of the greatest endings in film history. But there is something about the complexity, both the painful surrender to this burden that uh, Tell has been unable to release, but at the same time, this level of peace he's found within it and this ability he has to keep going despite it. I know there, there is something about this movie and watching Tell and living with Tell and uh, Isaac and Schrader placing us so fully in his psyche that just left me absolutely numb in the best possible way. Hmm. You know, if you can't tell, I really love this movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, I think it's a fairly good note to end on unless you have anything else you want to say. Um, you know, one thing I actually do want to bring up, Mm -hmm. this is actually something that I didn't realize when I saw it, Hmm. but I only learned about after the fact. There are a lot of people I know who actually like Schrader who did not want to see this movie specifically because the trailer for the card counter is one of the worst trailers I have ever seen for a great movie. Hmm. Um, I didn't see it until like a couple of weeks ago, but oh, so after you'd already seen the movie. Yeah. But like, I didn't understand why it's like, cause I, I heard all these people who I trust who I actually knew liked Trader a lot, telling me that like, oh, like really you like the card counter? It looked terrible. Hmm. And I didn't get why. And then I watched the trailer. It it made it look like a direct to video, like Hmm. action movie. Hmm. Like it's it's actually incredible how bad the trailer was. Like, I don't know. Which is impressive that they did that given that as we just discussed, there's not actually that much action in it. No, they made it look like a totally different movie. It's, (laughs) It's like, it's insane. And like I said, I, I don't go out of my way to watch trailers, but like this, this is some, it is honestly like, I, I recommend going to watch the trailer, like after you watch the movie, like don't let it like poison you in any way about the movie itself, but it is an experience to see just how bad this trailer is. Hmm. Well, I guess that's another thing. If you, if you're thinking about recommending the movie to someone, maybe warn them not to watch it or yeah. give them some, uh, cause I, I don't know if I've watch the trailer or not actually but like i mean know you know sometimes if someone recommends something to someone they might naturally just go look up the trailer on youtube so yeah tell I mean, someone not, not if they're to, gonna our, do that our, not our to... friend elijah is actually like one of the people i was talking about who loves schrader a lot but who held off on watching the movie because the trailer was so bad hmm. well i'm hopefully uh he finds his way to it now that i'm sure you've given him a strong recommendation since then uh, speaking of Elijah, the, the next pod people are going to have listened to before this one is, we're going to have listened to as the last episode I put out before this one was the West Side Story one. That that podcast, uh, I think, surpassed The Green Knight as the longest one now for just one movie on the podcast. So you, you know, realize I'm now going to have to take back that record at some point. 
I mean, yeah. I, so I, I was saying maybe sometime in 2022, we'll find something new for uh, you and Elijah to join for that'll allow that to to overtake West Side Story, though. That's two hours. That's like turns into two hours and 45 minutes of work to edit a two hour podcast when that happens. Though this one, even though it's two movies, has now probably gone longer than that one. But that is the the Green Knight is probably no longer the the, the one the the one movie record. Though to be fair. Uh, I, I, I did that with, uh, Josh Brown and, uh, John police and like 10 minutes of that turned into talking about just straight up award chances for stuff there. So it wasn't actually like hardcore analysis, the movie, like we didn't like do a departure to talk about the award chances of the green Knight. Uh, I'm going to hold my tongue about West side story, but okay. Fair enough. We all liked it though. So, uh, but speaking of other movies and stuff, do you have any other recommendations you want to make before we get out of here? Yeah. Um, a little different from what I, the type of thing I normally recommend, but I saw something I saw that I was not expecting to love as much as I did is the Todd Haynes documentary on the Velvet Underground. Hmm. Haynes is someone who I have historically liked a lot, but whose last movie I thought was really disappointing and kind of made me feel like he'd kind of lost his identity a little bit. Wondershark had a great trailer too. Speaking of trailers misrepresenting the actual movie. Sure. I was talking to be clear. But oh no, I actually liked yeah. it. Oh, Dark Waters. Yeah. I did not like Dark Waters. Oh, okay. Uh, I think I did actually. Huh. Um, but specifically, it was a movie that made me feel like Todd Haynes had lost his identity. Hmm. But not only was this just kind of every last bit of Haynes and kind of him diving so full into the material, it is one of the best music documentaries I've ever seen. It is barely the story of the band. And I mean that in the best possible way. It is a time capsule of New York in the 60s. And all I wanted to do while I was watching the movie and immediately after it finished was go make weird art. And it is one of the more creatively inspiring movies I've seen in a long time. Um, and I cannot recommend it enough for that reason. So funny you should make a recommendation because I, earlier this summer, I watched a documentary about a band uh, with you and I knew nothing about that band and I still like the documentary. Do you still have to know anything about the Velvet Underground to appreciate this documentary? I will say it probably helps. Um, okay, because I know nothing but, about the underground. <laughs> okay. it, it, it's not entirely necessary. Um, and, I, and I think, again, more of it is about painting the world as a whole. But again, because it isn't really the story of the band, as much as it is using that as a way to kind of show you this time, it does help a little bit to have some familiarity. I don't think it ruins the movie at all, but it, it does help a little bit. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, interesting. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll find my way to it. I did not realize it was an Apple TV Plus thing, so I have access to that, uh, even if it's not going to be in a theater near me. I guess my, my I'll make a TV recommendation. I've and just in the last week, and by the time people listen to this, I'll have caught up on uh, Showtime's Yellow Jackets, uh, which I've uh, really enjoyed. It's uh, then if you guys haven't heard about it, because I mean, I don't know that many people that get Showtime, but it's a show about a that's set across a few different uh, in a in a few different timelines, but you know. It, about a, a soccer a girl soccer team from New Jersey in 1996 they crashed on their on a flight on the way to nationals somehow between New Jersey and wherever they were going they ended up in the wilderness of Canada they have to survive some of them do and we follow some of them in like a current 2021 timeline and about how they're still dealing with the fallout from having been involved in something like that and how they're getting through life there it goes back and forth between the actual survival part of it and uh the present day part of it and i mean some really fun performances from some of the girls that play the younger versions of these uh characters who i'm not familiar with any of those actresses the 
older ones are played by Melanie Linsky and uh, Juliette Lewis and Christina Ricci, amongst others. Very, 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 uh, just very entertaining, funny at parts for stuff that's that dark, but also just very, very smart in how it handles like the trauma that these people must have been living with. And I highly recommend it. You can catch up in it pretty easily because there's still a few, a few weeks left of it. But yeah, that's about it. Uh, ben, do you want to plug anything, your letterbox or anything like that before you leave? Yeah, I'm starting to like sort of update my letterbox sometimes. You can find me as Ben Lubin on Letterboxd. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I mean, no real social media. Just yeah. go listen to the rewind. And and uh, I thought you were going to plug Paul Schrader's Facebook again, but oh yeah, that. No, I, absolutely <laughs> good, good, good call. Yeah, dude, please like it's 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 a public it's like it's it's personal Facebook page, but it's public, so like anyone can go visit it. It's so strange. He should probably just be on Twitter, but he just does it all on Facebook. <laughs> Which is incredible. <laughs> like, again, you have, like, you have all of these filmmakers who kind of have their social media platform that they, like, prioritize. Mm-hmm. Paul Schrader is the, literally the only one whose, like, platform of choice is Facebook. It's amazing. I guess this makes sense for, like, the old guy that's going to be on social media. Yeah, he's a 75-year-old white guy. At this point, at this point, Facebook is like largely old people. No, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm kind of I'm on Facebook some, but like I'm on Twitter more. And uh, it, it, whatever, if someone is some old filmmaker is just going to like rant about stuff. Like it, it, it I, I feel like Twitter might be the platform, but not for him. Uh, but yeah, uh, similarly, I'm trying to catch up on my letterbox too. Like Ben, I maybe going to take advantage of the holidays to like actually catch up before the end of the year, so I can be able to like just share a top ten list straight off a of letterbox easily. I don't know, but that's Josh Chernovoid, J O S H J U R N O V O Y on letterbox, Twitter, same thing. Uh, podcast Twitter is at Real Movie Pod. Podcast email is RealMoviePod at gmail.com. Send all your feedback that way um, with people like being out being indisposed for the holidays or certain friends having laptop troubles. I don't exactly know which podcasts are going to come next. I'm uh, obviously going to have one on Spider-Man No Way Home at some point and uh, something on Licorice Pizza at some point. And I, I don't honestly don't even know if I'm going to bother with the um, the new Matrix movie or not at this point, but uh, we'll see. But yeah, everyone stay tuned for that. There's obviously plenty of stuff still coming up um, uh, in the next uh, six weeks as all the rest of the awards stuff trickles out. Look forward to covering all that. I'm sure we'll see Ben maybe back at some point before we uh, get to the Oscars. So uh, everyone, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.